awe and a um, there's something so unattainable in a way about my mother. Welcome back to Tell Me About Your Mother. I'm Amy Westervelt. If this is your first time joining us, Tell Me About Your Mother is a podcast about how we interact with our mothers and how broader social and cultural trends play into that relationship. For this episode, I spoke with Iranian-American author Porochista Kakpur. She's the author of two fiction novels, Sons and Other Flammable Objects, and The Last Illusion. Her work has been nominated for several Pushcart Prizes, and she's a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship in Creative Writing. Porochista struggles with late-stage Lyme disease, and her journey with that is the subject of her forthcoming novel, a memoir called Sick. I've been following Porochista's work for years. She's a sort of writer that's so imaginative and creative that you read her stuff and just go, how does someone come up with this? I'm jealous. Anyway, it was actually an essay for CNN that made me want to speak to her for this show. It's called How Can I Be a Refugee Twice? And it traces Porochista's immigration to the U.S., and attempts at assimilation, and her concerns that amid increasing anti-Islam and anti-immigrant policies and sentiments in the U.S., she may need to leave her adopted home as well. It was this line that made me want to bring her on here. She's reading from a letter that her mother wrote her on election day, and that letter reads, I know you're disappointed, frustrated, and sad, as most of us are today. Today, I felt exactly the same way that I felt 37 years ago when our country went through revolution and we had to leave the country that we loved and grew up in, but we survived and started all over again here, and today we have two wonderful, successful kids and a place to call home again. When I called her to arrange to meet, Porochista mentioned that she'd recently had a spell of not speaking to her mother, something she later told me happens occasionally. I know the feeling. I was having some issues with my recorder at Porochista's house and unfortunately lost a couple great minutes of audio, during which she told me about her first memory of her mother. They were in Iran as the Islamic Revolution was underway, and some sort of air raid was happening. Porochista said she remembers her mother holding her tightly in a courtyard and protecting her. Years later, she said she saw a hot air balloon and panicked because it reminded her of that time. The family left Iran shortly after that, landing first in Europe and eventually making their way to the U.S. They moved to Cambridge for a while because Porochista's father had studied math at MIT, and so Cambridge was the only town he really knew. But they kind of stuck out like sore thumbs in Cambridge and had heard that many of their fellow Iranian refugees had resettled in Los Angeles, so eventually they made their way there. They didn't head to the Tarangelis part of L.A., but landed in a small suburb of Pasadena. They lived in a small apartment there and always struggled for money, which didn't bother Porochista and her brother as much as it did her mom. Her mom had grown up wealthy in Iran and had been something of a debutante. Here's Porochista on that. My, my mother still had very aristocratic tendencies or even like old debutante tendencies uh, um, even when we had no money in the U.S. I mean I never saw my mother not wearing makeup growing up I never saw my mother not impeccably dressed but I knew that we struggled to eat I knew that we struggled with like any basic expense my mother had a genius for still being able to look put together to make sure we looked that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the only difference was my brother and I had just grown up lower middle class and low class and we didn't care. <laughs> you know, we thought it was kind of cool to be poor. Yeah. Uh, we grew up in a, in a sort of sad apartment district in an otherwise like fairly, um, you know, I'd say upper middle class suburb. And we were in the bad part of town and we were with all the, you know, poor immigrant kids. And we didn't mind that. And we thought it was great. I thought, you know, wearing T-shirts and shorts and baseball caps was great. And 
eating, you know, cafeteria food was normal. And I knew other kids had parents that would like drive them in fancy cars to school. I knew, you know, um, but, and we didn't have that. And I was, but I was at peace with that. And my dad had a Pinto at one point and Pinto was always the butt of jokes always. And I was like, holy shit, my dad actually has a Pinto. So it was, um, um, my mother's anxieties. I remember at one point she felt gutted that I was living the way that I did. It was in my teenage years, and she thought, what a tragedy it was that I couldn't go to the summer in Italy with her to go shopping. And I thought, who does that, Mom? She said, I did that. And so for me, that was like, wow, I don't understand you. Like, you know, and it was like in trying to become American, there are parts of me that understood her less and less every day, it seemed, at that point. Mm -hmm. And so... We had this, like, interesting distance, I feel like. Um, she also had a lot of eating issues. And, um, you know, I still remember, like, I was always very enthusiastic about American junk food. Um, my, my, my brother and my dad and I, we have similar body types so that we're, like, fairly, like, uh, on the thin side. We eat tons of junk and we don't tend to gain a lot of weight. My mother has a very different body type and, and she was always very voluptuous and in, in a sort of very beautiful way. She, she, but she really beat herself up about that and had always beaten, beaten herself up about that. In fact, in Iran, had been a champion swimmer. And so she had some of that athlete's, um, athlete's like scrutiny of the body, you know, yeah. on top yeah. of being like the only daughter of a family where, you know, in a culture where sons are very championed and, and, and daughters not so much. So, um, and she always got a lot of attention for beauty. So she had... In, by her 20s, she told me she had just stopped eating dinner. She just didn't really eat dinner. And so growing up, I watched her constantly on all sorts of uh, very L.A. juice fasts. Or, you know, she tried to do the thing of baking um, cakes or cupcakes and things like that for us. And I would enthusiastically, you know, lick the bowl. And I'd be so excited because I feel like a kid in an American sitcom. Yeah. And then my mother would be like, oh, you're going to get fat. Don't, don't do that. Be careful. And then just there was a shadow of her and the issues of women um, and issues of women in Iran plus issues of women in America. It was always like hovering around me and that I couldn't quite understand. With all this in mind, I was... I, I, I like worshipped her. I mean, she was like, I had a different worship of my dad. You know, my dad for me was like, um, you know, so intellectually, just like an intellectual powerhouse. And, 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 and we had a weird like father-son relationship, which had some competition involved. But also, you know, it was always so hard to live up to standards, whether we were playing chess or um, whether I was excelling or not in school. With my mother, it was a different world. Um, she was not someone who um, engaged in intellectual discourse. She didn't really, she wasn't much of a reader. She had been when she was younger, but she she really abandoned that. And so for me, growing up, what my mother and I did always was go to malls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time with my mother in malls. And... Even now I spend time with my mother at malls. <laughs> and it's not, malls are funny to me because they're a, a sort of hell. And I always felt them to be a sort of a certain hell, you know. There were times that I found them exciting. I'd get, you know, 
going shopping or whatever, but but it wasn't that easy for us because it wasn't like I could go shopping and buy whatever I want, right? Yeah. Um, I was always very um, sensitive to watching other people at these malls and knowing that like, oh, for some people, this is just a place where you can buy whatever you want and go home and it's great. So there was like a, a fraught feeling there too. And then there was, of course, my mom's anxiety about her size and clothes and her panicking and dressing rooms and mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, there was also this feeling for me with my mother, it was a world where my dad wasn't included so she could talk honestly about problems um, they were having. She'd often vent to me, sometimes vent to me a little inappropriately about problems that she was having, you know, yeah. where I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. So it was like this, that was like our world and it was always a little bit sad and it was always a little bit beautiful um, because I think we didn't know how to find each other for many years, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think I was the daughter. I looked like the daughter that she'd imagined. And she always said that she thought I looked like Snow White or wanted a daughter to look like Snow White, which Mm -hmm. I later was like, had to really analyze, like, what was it there that she wanted exactly? But she really wanted me to be a certain type of pretty girl yeah. a certain type of um, you know I, I put on um what is it, instagram a few weeks ago a photo that um <laughs> I, I my mother basically made me try out for a pageant mm-hmm. and it's i don't know if you remember the tournament of roses parade yeah. okay so in pasadena that's our big thing with the rose bowl right there and that's like yeah. a massive thing so all the high schools in the area are called on to try it you know there's like open call try try out to be rose queen and the rose court and everything in high school, I was obsessed with like feminism and punk rock, and this is like '92 to '96, and like, yeah, I was like, by then I was like embracing that I had like hairy legs, and I was like wearing like my cool like Malcolm X glasses and like concert T-shirts, and I was just like, kind of like looked very like, um, you know, I was like modeling myself after sort of queer icons and things like that, and she was like, okay, like now you're gonna <laughs> try out for the rose parade. I was also become a little bit of a prankster at that age. So I was like, wow, this is so crazy. How will I do this? And I thought, maybe I should, should just do this. I didn't have anything to wear. So she was like, oh, we'll go shopping and buy you something. I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. She said, well, then you'll have no choice but to wear one of my suits. And I was just like, wow, okay. First of all, we were not the same size. Again, she's like very voluptuous. I was never, I had this photo and I can send it to you if you want. It's like my mom's like this like very corporate blue like like suit thing that I'm wearing in this photo and they've made me like carry this bouquet of roses and I just answered these weird questions about why I want to be on the rose court but I was also kind of like fucking with them and using that as a platform to like talk about activism and feminism (laughs) they were just like you know like get this girl out of here um but that was like my mom's dream or like you know it was my mom's dream for me to go to prom um I went to junior prom as a joke again the weirdest guy asked me to prom a track star and I was just like thought that he was pranking me and so then I ended up kind of pranking him so I would like go along with these things as gestures to her because I knew she would want it but like you know like the I, I, they were always it was always this compromise because I had a sense of myself already at that point it was it was in some ways in opposition to her yeah but part of it also was that I knew I could never be her I could never compete with that her standard of like femininity and and mate 
sort of beautiful matriarch energy with all its ups and downs was something that was completely unattainable for me. Yeah. Uh, the world of men, the world of like scrappy, like LA youth or like, you know, alternative yeah. cultures was much more accessible. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's awe and a, um, there's something so unattainable in a way about my mother. I'm going to post that photo of Porochista trying to be the Rose Queen in our Instagram and Twitter feed, so look for that. Porochista says her mom gave up on the pageant thing after a while, and there were a few moments where she and her mom began to really accept each other and form a different type of relationship. I've lost my affection, but I guess that's just... There were several, several important moments. One was when, so I had my first boyfriend after uh, I graduated high school. I'd been working at a bookstore my, my senior year in high school. And there was a guy that um, had sort of taken to me, and he was much older. And, you know, he was, like, amazing and brilliant and cool and was, like, just of a world that my mom definitely didn't understand. And I think I didn't understand. He was sort of a... Uh, he postured himself a bit as like a Chicano gangster. So he'd pick me up in a different car every night. He, there was always like a bunch of money that he'd have me pack for him. He had all these sort of like uh, uh, ideas of himself too. Mm-hmm. This was in many ways a nightmare boyfriend as a first boyfriend, you know, for a immigrant mother, Iranian woman with all sorts of issues around race and ethnicity and identity and all sorts of weird um discomforts about LA culture yeah my parents would have been happy for me to marry an Iranian man right out of high school and just call it you know that's it just like forget the books forget writing forget just have some babies it's fine you know Um, which was obviously not what I was going to do I was knew I wanted to be a writer at the age of four Um, so this guy would pick me up all the time and my mom at that point had started becoming obsessed with our what I was calling our friendship, mm-hmm. but she, of course, knew better. She started driving all around town to try to find me. She was, like, constantly... I'd never seen this side of my mom. I never knew her to be very engaged with my life. And she was, like, stalking us, basically. And I'd be like, God damn it. And she knew that I was up to something. She ended up reading my diary. Oh, my God. But it's like, you know, yeah. now when I imagine having a daughter, I almost am like, wait, I understand that, you know, in some weird way. It's, like, so dangerous, the world for these girls. But... Yeah. My mom got, she read the diary, and it was like one of these entries, you know, it was a steamier entry, let's say, and and had some information, and she was just like, oh my God, what? And I was so betrayed as a writer. I was like, how dare you? Like, I already already had the identity of a writer, and I had all these warnings written on the first few pages of my diary. (laughs) Yes. And I thought I'd hidden it really brilliantly and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. I was so betrayed, and that was a big fight for us. And it, like, lasted a while, and I felt like it was just this fractured thing. Um, But what I didn't realize was also what she was doing was protecting me a little bit from my father. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't as close to my father, she was trying to, like, keep me intact so I wasn't, like, also subject to his rage. And so my mother was being a protector on multiple levels, I think, Um, it was around this time that I started hearing more about what her life as a young person was like. 
a man that she had known before my father, or different men she had encountered through her life, you know, the different attentions. She's, she started talking to me more frankly about herself. And so, like, in the summers between my uh, college years, her and I would have a lot of open discussions. And there was also s- several points where I felt that she might uh, divorce my father. And they had had a lot of difficulty in their marriage in those years. And she would turn to me and talk to me about a lot of it, too. And I wouldn't know, again, what to say. I was just kind of like, I don't know. You should just do it. Like, you know, I would try to think about her as, like, my mother, my parent, and the idea of our family unit. But then I would also, like, I had a lot of feminist consciousness. So I would be like, what? Dad is being like this. Like, forget it, man. Have your own life. Like, you don't need this. So it was like this constant (laughs) conflict for me, too, um, where I couldn't tell if my mother was in a good situation or a bad situation. Now my parents have an amazing marriage and they get along really well. But for many years, it didn't feel that way. And so I felt like... Is my mother someone that needs rescue? Is my mother someone that needs help? Mm-hmm. Is are, are aspects of both cultures, Iranian and American, holding her back in some way? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell. And it's recently she's had more frank discussions with me again a lot after the election. Mm-hmm. Um, she's felt a lot more comfortable to tell me about the sacrifices she made for us and the ways in which she was never even felt allowed to be a feminist and never felt allowed to talk about. Um, and that permission was an issue just with my dad. It was like cultural things, larger yeah. things. She didn't have a group of like girlfriends the way I do. She didn't have like, I was her only connection to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, she used to tell me like, I, I, I start to realize it was a line for her like, Yes, get married, have kids. That would be a good thing. You know, I started to hear her more when I hit my mid-30s and now that I'm at the end of my 30s. Like, you know, I've never completely ruled out having children. It's something I'm still open to, but it's not something that defines me. That anxiety doesn't define me in the way it does some of my other friends. But she's. I found her saying things like, I kind of think your life is great and you don't need to go down that road. Like... Yeah, like, why would he want to be married and have kids? Like, just do what you're doing. I wish I could have done this. And I'd be like, Mom, but it's also so ungrounded. And like, don't yeah. you think, like, it would be good for me? And she'd be like, mm, I don't know. No one's the boss of you. It's kind of great. Like, you don't have to answer to someone. It's funny to hear, to, to you know, hear, hear that. that. Yeah, that's, that's really funny. But that's an interesting thing if you think about, like, our generation where we're usually so much later to having kids and getting married and all that but when I think about my mother you know having her first child at like 27 you know getting married in her mid-20s or my grandmother's one of them like in her teens you know my great-grandmother I think was 14 so it's like what were these women like like what what would have if they were given the opportunities we're given, what, yeah. what, I mean, what would have, th- what would their interests have been? What would their, like, yeah. you it's know? Like, yeah, like what kind of people would they have Yeah, become? they weren't fully allowed. And I think about it, it was very close to my, both of my grandmothers. See, my mother's mother is also someone that was very, very dear to me, and she passed away in uh, 2015. But my mother's generation, what's interesting in Iran is, they were very much in the 70s obsessed with 70s feminism, too. And so, for instance, cesarean sections were, uh, cesareans were trendy. Yeah. So it was like, they were like, why would you go through the pain of childbirth? We'll just cut the baby out of you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So my mother could have had a natural birth with me, but chose not to. It was just seen as passe. Yeah. So, and then also passe would be to be a breastfeeding homemaker. It's so funny, right? It's so, um, yeah. I mean, her, my mom describes, like, like right after she, she had me, she went right back to work and just gave me to her, like, my grandmother. Yeah. And so I became very close to my grandmother from the time I was an infant because mm-hmm. she was always around. My mom wasn't. Um, and, you know, my mom talks about how the, her doctors, her male doctors actually were like, come on, what, you want to, like, they would, like, promote a type of feminism onto her, too, and she'd be and all her friends with... That swing back and forth in the ways in which feminism has been defined and to greater or lesser extent imposed on women is really interesting. My own mom was a homemaker until we hit middle school, but she's got some similar ideas about childbirth and breastfeeding. I breastfed both my kids and my mom has never stopped thinking it was gross. As she's gotten older and through her relationship with her daughter learned more about women's rights, Porochista's mom has gotten increasingly more supportive of female leadership. Porchista says she was hugely excited about Hillary Clinton's campaign and the idea that a woman could be president. She was she was just like tremendously excited, you know. She was just like this was to her meant a lot, and she really believed it was going to happen. Um, th- there's another angle to this too, where my mother. Um, I can't believe I forgot to mention this. So my mother is also kind of like that spiritual person that's not really religious but is like truly spiritual so she has this belief in a guardian angel and it many times in my life i felt very like destroyed by the magical thinking that exists in all sorts of cultures of mine but iranian culture there's so much so much superstition and all sorts of uh different types of magical thinking that can be really toxic and i've always been very fearful of it um, but this thing that my mother would always say when something important was coming up from me and my brother or my dad, and she'd always say that she's praying to her guardian angel. Mm-hmm. And my dad would kind of make fun of her. Like, you know, my dad is fairly agnostic to atheist. You know, he just always felt like religion caused problems in the Middle East. Um, he was interested in it intellectually. He was interested in Zoroastrianism intellectually, but he's very much from a Muslim background. His own mother was like Sufi. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, he would make fun of my mother's sort of fake uh religion and whatever this guardian angel was but my mother didn't care she would always pray to it and lo and behold the guardian angel seemed to often get things right like when my mother would pray on something things would sort of work out and it was like always a little bit frustrating to us we were like what huh like i love that she just like made up her own religion yeah yeah and it was like unclear like is this like sometimes i would talk to her about it i was like who do you think it is like is it your great grandma sometimes it seemed like it was her great grandma or her grandma or like a little unclear but it was like this entity that she would like pray to and one of the things that's funny is for years, I had a debilitating fear of flying. I had a very bad emergency landing after my, uh, my first job out of college, which involved tons of flying. Yeah. And then that was six months or so before 9-11. And then I watched the second plane hit out my window. So I really couldn't fly for a long time. And uh, I mean, I did, but it was like torturous. And so she would always um, say, just give me a call before you go and I'll pray to the guardian angel. So... I, I kid you not, I'm, I'm a few months short of 40. Mm-hmm. And 
it's only been in recent, maybe the past year, because I just fly so much and travel so much. Um, up until this last year, I called her before and after every flight. Yeah. Always. <laughs> Always. And it would be like, she'd be like, it's a garden angel call. And I was like, yep. And she'd be like, okay, don't worry, I got this. You know, and we do this every time. And it's like, and I'd always be like wary. Like, of course, I'm wary not to speak in Farsi in airports. Even before the Muslim ban, I was always like worried about that. But I'd also be like, you know, wary to not say like, can you pray to your guardian angel on the phone? I'd just be like, hi, mom. She'd be like, guardian angel call. I'd be like, yep. Okay, bye. (laughs) Sometimes I'd be like, G-A, G-A. She's like, G-A, what? G-A, okay. Oh. Got it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's that. They, these are also the sort of mystical aspect of my mother is another layer in which she felt unknowable. I really love the fact that Porochista's mom has just created her own religion and is totally committed to it. It's great. Porchista likes it too, but also wonders if it's somehow patriarchal to imagine women as these magical, mystical beings, the way she does with her mom. It was really interesting to listen to her talk through that. When I was younger, you lived eternally. This is again coming from a patriarchal culture, a form of misogyny, this idea of the woman as being mystical and unknowable that I've like sort of fell into too how can I not understand my mother to some degree um but it's funny I mean there were my own I I know I don't think they knew what to do with me too and you know how do you know what what a child who goes through that sort of experience of revolution and war and all that I mean I know my brother who was born in America five years after me my brother was someone who could hug everybody Mm -hmm. hugs and kisses and everything like that he's very affectionate my mother was always hugs and kisses with him. Of course, in Iranian culture, the boys are revered. The daughters are not so much. Yeah. I don't remember hugging my mother once my entire adolescence. Really? It wasn't until we were much older that we yeah. did that. It was still kind of awkward. But, you know, my brother and I shared a tiny room until um, I was 17. We shared a room in this tiny apartment. And my mother would always go and tuck him in and would, like, hug and a kiss. And then sort of hover over me and be like, okay, well, good night. And, and, and when I was much younger, I would just feel so, I would like go to bed crying because I'd see it as a deficiency of mine. Like, why couldn't I inspire that in my mother? Yeah. But at the same time, I knew if she tried, I would be like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about that. I'm okay. Don't, uh, you know, there was something about me that was sort of like that weird tomboy energy or whatever it was that wouldn't have been receptive to it. But I wanted to know that at least she wanted to, that she felt that. But I was also like a weird grown-up for my parents. You know, they looked at me as like the problem solver, as a sort of adult at a certain age. So yeah. I was like taking care of them. And it's I'm always worried about them. I'm always having to like fix something. Eventually, Porochista came to understand that her parents were proud of the strength of hers. I, I was just completely not what I think they thought I was going to be. And I just, I didn't even realize at that point that they were so proud of parts of me that didn't fit the mold of what, say, the perfect Iranian daughter would be. They were conflicted on that. I mean, a part of them, I think, was just like, 
well, if she just gets married to some Iranian guy and it will go with our traditions and blah, 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 it'll be taken care of and then she won't fall into all this crazy American madness. Mm -hmm. But I know this, that like they were also kind of excited when I was um, at different times in my life. I was somewhat athletic at different times in my life. I was um, sort of challenging of authority at, and, and I, I would find this out later that like both my mom and dad were like secretly like, wow, that's great. Even though their line to me was kind of like, no, that's horrible. Of course, I didn't know the other part of them. I just heard, no, it's horrible. And so I had all this anxiety around them and like didn't want to tell them anything and didn't want to, you know. So this like navigating of the Iranian and the American has taken up so much of my life on Mm -hmm. so many levels, but it's really affected my relationship with my parents in a way that my brother hadn't dealt with. In many ways, Porochista says she and her parents are still working through their Iranian and American identities. In fact, that was the root of the argument that caused them to not speak for a few months recently. This happens once in a while, but really, um, this, it was, uh, recently we got back in touch because I just had so many problems after the, when I went back home for winter break, I was sort of like happy to see them and also so traumatized about, you know, this was December, January. I was all my old activist trauma plus like all sorts of Middle Eastern trauma and PTSD, all that stuff was back full force and I was having all my health problems with Lyme again and I just sort of felt like they weren't hearing me and they were like subscribing to bad ideas and my mother was trying to be optimistic but it was coming out really poorly and like, you know, at, at some point I felt like she was being like an apologist for Trump supporters or something like, you no. Know, but I, I, I think I wasn't thinking straight because I wasn't thinking that they themselves have a lot of trauma. And this was their own way of coping. Right. And I wanted my parents to, they wanted me to not be afraid. I wanted them to not be afraid. I wanted us to have like a frank discussion about what was happening. So I ended up like feeling a lot of um, all sorts of residual anger. And so... When we said bye to each other last winter, I was just kind of like, I don't need this. Like, I, I'm, I, I was trying to help you guys, and I want to, I want to, you know, if I'm going to put myself out there honestly with you guys, I, you know, there's all that stuff basically, yeah. and it was yeah. like tense and bad, and and it also felt like such a, um, you know, in that CNN piece, the thing you talked about, the letter that my mother yeah. wrote me after yeah. the election, I just thought was so beautiful and yeah. so complex and so like gorgeous and talking about how they had had a very similar experience in Iran after the revolution and that mm-hmm. one needs to hold on to hope and I had felt really like that was such a big thing and then and, and so that CNN piece actually came out in both of these long, long essays I wrote weirdly for CNN these in the season came out during this period where my parents and I weren't really talking much yeah. and even our Persian New Year messages were fairly distant and respectful but like not as they used to be and I felt that we all needed to kind of think about our role in each other's lives perhaps and so this was happening with all sorts of friends of mine and you know we were all sort of reevaluating who yeah. are our people where are we you know what's yeah. going on yeah. um, and then in in recent I can't even remember what happened my mother in the last few weeks we've been 
sort of back in touch. There was something, there's something about my illness that, so she keeps up with me on social media. Yeah. And she used to even be my Facebook friend. My brother had like not Facebook friended her and stuff. And then I had to unfriend her because she started, you know, being a mom a lot. I'm a patient saying personal information of mine where like weirdos would then pick up personal info of mine online and be like, mom, you can't do this. I don't know some of these people on Facebook. Like they're just like, you know, readers of mine and things like that. So she, but she still, you know, she has like an Instagram account. She like looks at my Twitter. She looks at my Facebook. I'm like, fine, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. But she had commented, she'd reached out to me and was worried about my health or worried about some other things and we had a back and forth and you know it was tense and difficult and I had a moment of just kind of like expressing a lot of residual anger very openly to her in an email Mm -hmm. which I really hadn't done in my life before with her and her answer back to me really moved me because she wrote about how that was where she talked about a lot of like how she wishes that she had also been a feminist and she wishes that things had been different for her and she sees she has a lot of hopes and admirations that she sees in let's say she her hope and she she experiences a lot of hope and admiration in my person mm-hmm. and in a way that's different than just like what a mother would feel like she's just it, it's like if life was a choose your own adventure she sees me as going down this path that had a lot of opportunities and privileges that she didn't and it's funny because in my head I would think like oh my god my life was so much harder than yours you went shopping in Italy and like you know you, you could eat and you know as you wished and you had all this like you know and you got married easily and you had to you know all the I, it's funny it's like this cultural exchange with us like it yeah. doesn't make any sense in our distance and so in this email exchange when I read her and the way she talked about her sacrifices and the things that she didn't have that she wished she had as a woman and, and her reckoning with all this stuff now in her mid-60s mm-hmm. I was really moved and I, I remember wrote to her and I think she didn't expect this because I, I was like in this mode of like oh what see you know <laughs> Well, you know, I was so upset that I wrote her, like, thank you so much for your honesty, and thank you, and this means the world to me. And then she wrote me, thank you so much. And so it was this, like, breakthrough for us because it involved both of us risking, really speaking, extremely honestly with each other. And so I couldn't be in a loop where I feel mad at being mad. I had to just, like, let myself be mad, you know? Yeah, it's not a good feeling getting mad at your mom, you know? Yeah. But, like, that happens, right? And I had to, like, let that happen. And then she had to, like, kind of get mad at me and be like, it's not a good feeling to get mad at your daughter. Um, and, and we talked about that. And there were also these issues around us about, like, illness for me. And, like, my parents were never very much there for me when I'd be sick. I think it would freak them out. Yeah. And so their way of dealing with me being ill is often being fairly distant. It's really hard. I started to realize, again, it was like their worry for me that would make them be like this. Mm -hmm. And so it would, like, it would come out weirdly. And so we also had to, like, talk about all that stuff. And in the last few years, they've come to, like, more of an understanding of Lyme disease and late-stage Lyme and different things. And so it's, I've had to be patient and realize that it's a work in progress with them, too. They can't just immediately come to being like the way I need them to be. So yeah. that's, I think, a big part of like getting older too. And, yeah. you know, you like want 
the grown you've always wanted the grown-ups to be the grown-ups and like you're the one that's evolving Mm -hmm. and then you're suddenly in the position where like oh you're the you're totally the grown-up it's cold out here mama yes it's starting to snow Oof, being a grown-up. Uh, I guess I guess that's what we all get to. I, I really, really enjoyed talking to Parochista, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to our conversation. We'll be back in another two weeks with a new episode, an interview with Allison Maloney, the news and politics editor of Teen Vogue. She's got a really, really intense and heartbreaking story about her mom that is very insightful and, again, totally different from the other two. So I hope you'll tune in for that one. Thanks a lot. See you next time. It's picking up steam You might not live to see me Realize my dream It's cold out here Tell Me About Your Mother is produced by me, Amy Westervelt, and available via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. Our music is composed by the super talented Mr. B. Beeman. Check out more of his stuff at bbeman.com. That's B-H-I-B-H-I-M-A-N.com. Our illustrations are done by James Guthman, super talented artist in California. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and dropping a review on iTunes. If you have feedback or questions or are interested in sharing a story about your mother, shoot me an email at amy at tmamepod.com. That's A-M-Y at T-M-A-Y-M-Pod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at About Your Ma. Follow us. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.